Welcome to the Genre Wars Book Podcast, which exists to help you read wider and find great new books we didn't expect them. We chat about the best stories from people's favourite genres with the authors who write them. I'm your host, Tim Holkin, and today I'll be talking YA fantasy with Sabah Tahir. Sabah's books have sold more than a million copies worldwide and recently made Time Magazine's 100 Best Fantasy Books of All Time. Her latest book, A Sky Beyond the Storm, is out December 1st and is by a mile the most eagerly awaited fantasy series finale this year. Saba has a bright sock addiction, makes a mean music playlist, and enjoys killing off darling characters even more than Jay Kristoff and George R. Martin combined. Saba, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tim. It is awesome to be here. I have to say, we actually share a sock addiction. So I am. Um, oh, wearing, do we? Oh, great. I'm, I'm wearing my ridiculous Stormtrooper Star Wars socks today that make my feet look like Stormtroopers. I, I hide them I under, love those. I hide them under jeans so I, of, to avoid public embarrassment. But um, what's, what's your favorite pair of socks? And how did, you, how did that, that start for you? So I got into socks probably when I was a teenager and um, I got more into them when I was in my 20s because I had um, I have this thing where, you know, if you wear these ridiculous socks, it's like a little secret you have that nobody can see. Right. And so um, I love wearing profane socks, um, socks that have curse words on them, socks that, you know, are like anything that's a little bit different or weird or wacky just because it makes me happy to think about during the day if I, you know, at the time, you know, if I was in a particularly, you know, boring meeting or, um, you know, if I was dealing with with someone at work who who really just bothered me, um, I would sort of occasionally think about my socks and just, it would just make me laugh. It's such a silly thing, but, um, but my love of socks is great. And my favorite pair of socks, it's really difficult to say because it's a lot about pattern, but it's also a lot about comfort, right? You're wearing these things exactly. all day. Um, so I have this um, pair of socks that has a donkey on it um, and he's wearing like a sweater and he has glasses and there's like a little pile of books next to him and it just says smart above it. And it's a really <laughs> stupid pun. It's not particularly clever, but I find it very amusing. And so I wear those all the time. <laughs> you smart ass socks. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. And, so you talk about comfort. Do you prefer thin socks or thick socks? I like like something right in between, right? So if it's Goldilocks. too thin, then I feel like ugh, y- yucky. But if it's too thick, then my feet get hot. And then that's also very gross. So it's got to be that like Goldilocks zone. Yeah, exactly. A sock. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should probably start talking about, about books and writing and things. Um, Fair enough. Congratulations on the release of the new book, um, or just Thank about to, just about to come out. It must be um, pretty amazing feeling to finish uh, a four book series. That um, how long ago did you start start writing the first book, An Ember in the Ashes? It was thirteen years ago, wow. um, in the summer of two thousand and seven, and I. It is a very. Um, it's a very strange experience. Overwhelmingly positive, but there's also I think a lot of emotion uh, involved in the sense that, you know, these characters have been with me for so long. It really does feel a lot like saying goodbye to a family member or family members. Um, And not just because I kill some of them, Um, but but because I'm not going to be writing this story again, I might return to the world of Ember. I have many ideas for that world, but 
their story is complete with with the sky beyond the storm. So that's a little um, that's a little difficult on the heart. You know, mm. it, it's it made me a little sad. And how did you how did you react or celebrate? I hear I heard that when um, Herman Melville finished Moby Dick, he like destroyed his office and raged around the room, and then passed out, and his wife found him <laughs> like this bundle of mess. That's such a like typical thing to do if you know that your wife is going to clean up your office. <laughs> like, I feel sorry for his wife. Like, what a horrible thing to do. But um, I am. Um, I it was very late when I sent off the um, the book, and uh, my husband, God bless him, um, kept me company because he knew that the you know I was doing my very final edit, and then I was going to send off the book, and it was finished. And so he actually stayed up um, until two in the morning with me um, and sat with me. And then I, you know, I sent the book and um, we kind of sat together and just, you know, I had a big cry. And then, you know, he, he definitely got emotional too, because this has been a huge part of his life as well. He's mm. been with me the whole time. Um, we've been together for, for 17 years now. Um, so, um, so, and then, you know, he took a picture of me because he's like, I want to, I want to capture this moment. I'm like, you know, wearing this, like, hideous purple shirt and sweats and they look like garbage um but i he said so you know he takes his picture um and you know then we had chocolate um i had some chocolate ice cream i had ben and jerry's um chocolate fudge brownie specifically which is the finest ice cream on the planet um <laughs> and that was how i marked the end of the series and then I fell asleep for like 14 hours. <laughs> oh, sounds sounds like the perfect way to do it. Um, yeah. I'd love to love to flip um, a little bit to, I guess, um, where you grew up and and your influences. We lo- I like to talk about um, not just books that that really grabbed you as a reader when you were young, but people who influenced you growing up um, and influenced your tastes sure. um, and outside influences. You grew up in a in a motel in in the Mojave Desert in California. Um, like tell tell me about that and and how you got into reading and um and why yeah of course um so my parents bought this motel um when i was 1 years old um and my father who was trained as um as an engineer um you know and who had been living in britain in the uk since he was quite young um uh, brought, you know, our family over. And, and I think he had just thought this is an opportunity to sort of run my own business for a few years. And then, you know, I'll go back to engineering. Um, and it turned out to be much more, (laughs) much more complicated than that. (laughs) Um, so the motel was relatively small. It was in a very, very isolated desert town. The town was actually not tiny. It was, um, about 20,000 people, but it was on a Navy base. Um, and so there's a lot of trans, there's a very, very uh, large transient population. People were just constantly coming in and out of this town. And, you know, we were one of the families that stayed. We were also one of the only families, um, one of the only Muslim families in the town and definitely one of the only Pakistani families in the town. I think for years we were the only Pakistani family in the town. Eventually other Pakistanis did move there, but for a while it was, it was just us. And as a result, um, you know, we dealt with a lot of racism, a lot of prejudice, um, violence at times. Um, you know, my parents uh, dealt with customers who, you know, treated them awfully because of, of um, the color of our skin, because of, you know, how my parents spoke, because of, you know, where they were from. Um, but at the same time, we also met really incredible people um, and, and really fascinating people. Like there was a man who couldn't pay his rent. And so he left, but, but he kept birds 
so he kept, he left us a bird um, as like a way of <laughs> being like, sorry, I couldn't pay rent, but here's a bird with a cage and everything you need for the bird. Your children will enjoy it. And then he left. Um, there was a guy who, um, we don't know what happened, but he punched a hole in the wall. Um, and he left very early um, in the night. I mean, you know, he didn't, I don't even think he stayed at night. Maybe he was too nervous and he left, you know, 400 bucks on the, on the table with the note that just said, I'm sorry, um, to fix, I guess, this hole that he somehow managed to stick in the wall. We couldn't figure out if he like punched it or it was very confusing. Mm. Um, um, you know, so we had, we had, and we, you know, we had all sorts of tourists. They were from all over the world. We sort of noticed that, um, the German tourists were always the nicest and the British tourists were always the meanest. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and Australian tourists were also always very nice, but we didn't have as quite as many, um, when I was growing up. So, you know, little things about the town stand out to me that are both positive and negative, but when it comes to the motel, um, you know, I tried to remember the funny stuff as well as the, the sort of darker stuff because, you know, that was my whole childhood. So it's easier to come to terms with it if you remember some of the positive too. And so was reading a, a bit of an escape for you from that? Um, I, or, you know, I yeah. brother was into comics and you used to raid his comic book stash. I used to, yes, yes. I would steal comics from my, my brother had this big green chest and he had a giant lock on it, but he wasn't particularly creative about where he hid the key. He hid <laughs> it in like some really obvious place that I can't remember. It was like under his pillow or something just very not, you know, not James Bond level. Right. And so, um, so I would, you know, when he was, uh, you know, at camp or at a friend's house or whatever, I would sneak into his room and open that chest and read, you know, X-Men comics and Superman comics and, um, ElfQuest and, um, a Sandman, you know, and all this stuff that was probably a little advanced for me, but I, mm. you know, I read it all. Um, and that got me into comics. And then when I was, um, in sixth grade or t- 10 or so, I think my, my oldest brother, cause I have two, my, my oldest one, he bought me a copy of the sword of Shannara or Shannara, I think is how you properly mm. say it. Yeah. Um, by Terry Brooks. And that was really my first introduction into, um, into fantasy. Um, before that I had read all sorts of things and I'd kind of gravitated toward fantasy, but never really understood that it was its own genre. And, um, and Terry Brooks really opened that world for me. And it was an escape, 100%. Reading has, has always been an escape for me, even now, um, when I'm, you know, irritated at my children or, <laughs> you know, at writing, um, or I'm, you know, frustrated about the state of the world, I, I will pick up a fantasy book. In fact, I'm, I'm reading um, Terry Brooks's last last series right now in, in the Shannara series oh, wow. um, called, the, called The Fall of Shannara. And it is just like stepping into you know, a warm blanket. It's so wonderful to read because this series has been with me since I was a little girl and it's like very bittersweet to sort of, to, to sort of read the end of it and to realize that Ember is also ending at the same time. Like what a bizarre coincidence, mm. you know? So. And so was, was, would you say in terms of influences um, and books that really grabbed you was Terry Brooks and the Shannara Chronicles, one of those pivotal things that, that really changed the way you looked at books? Yeah, I would say um, um, the Shannara series. Um, so I keep saying Shannara. I know it's Shannara. I'm sorry. Shannara. Sorry, Terry, if you're, you know, if you're ever out there and listening to this, I apologize. We'll just we'll blame um, so my silly Australian series, accent. There you go. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, the Shannara series was, was really um, formative for me. Um, 
Isaac Eismov Foundation mm. um, and um, and some of his short stories. I remember reading those. Um, Ursula Le Guin's Earth Sea mm. um, series was very very formative for me. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of all the you know Anne McCaffrey's Pern. I read that in my later later in my teenage years. A lot of books by Mercedes Lackey. Um, yeah, I, I ended up. You know, Terry Burke's actually ended up being one of the only male writers who I really, really loved. Most of the writers I ended up reading ended up being women um, because I just felt like their characters, you know, I, I was gravitating toward um, more female characters and I felt like their characters were more interesting and their female characters were sort of more richly developed um so uh octavia butler i read mm. i read a lot of her stuff when i was young too and um and then i also interestingly it wasn't just fantasy i got into literary fiction when i was younger um and i i i blame that on um arundhati roy who wrote the god of small things mm. um and that was the first time i saw a book um that had you know, that was so critically acclaimed written by a person who looked like me. Um, I didn't know that we could write books. It was just not something, and it sounds strange. And I think that for a lot of people who have never had that experience, who don't know what it's like to not see themselves reflected either in TV or media or books or whatever, um, they might not know what that feels like. But I genuinely did not think that I could be a writer until I read her book and was like, oh, um, that's a job that I could do one day. I mean, I, I still never really, um, never really committed to it until I was much, much older because it didn't seem realistic to me. Um, I had, you know, I had bills to pay. Um, I didn't have a, a family to, to support me. I had to put myself through school and, and all that stuff when I was a young, a young adult and a, and a, and a um, young, young twenties. But, um, but that was really the first time that I understood. And that book, what is sort of, it's literary, but it has a little bit of magic in it. And it's, it's very, um, it's, it's not a very genre specific book though. I think people would classify it as, as literary fiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Like, um, so I, the very first episode I did, I spoke about literary fiction, um, with an Australian writer, Brooke Davies, and we, we found it really difficult to come on to, I guess, some kind of definition, and because it's so broad, but then and, and looking at different examples and one of the books she um, recommended as one of her favorites was The Power by Naomi Alderman, which is, mm -hmm. is almost sci-fi. It's like these women get the power to be able to shoot electricity out of their fingers and how that changes politics and world events, which is a phenomenal, phenomenal book. Um, and then we're talking about Salman Rushdie, who Midnight's Children is one of my favourite books of all time, and that's kind of more magical realism, and that's got magic and flying carpets and all sorts of, like, food that changes people's emotions and stuff in it. So it almost feels like literary fiction is just whatever you kind of want it to be as long as it's had some kind of critical acclaim in that space. Um, yeah, that seems pretty accurate. Um, I'm thinking about like Isabella Allende and Eva Luna. That was one of the first literary fiction mm. books I'd read. That that's actually one of the books that got me into it. That book and um, and uh, Song of Song of Solomon by mm. uh, by Toni Morrison, um, because you know literary fiction was where I was starting to see women of color writing. 
Um, I had seen a little bit of that as a young person reading, you know, so-called classics, right? But most of the classics I read were written by dead white men mm. um, or dead white women. And as a little brown kid growing up in the desert, I did not relate to what they were writing about. And it didn't matter if they were writing about themes that are, you know, supposedly universal themes. They didn't feel universal to me um, because I could, I just, I couldn't relate. But when I read Song of Solomon, um, you know, when I read Eva Luna, when I read books that had sort of a, a deeper, that, that did a deeper dive into um, what it is to be a person of color, um, you know, or just, that were from a different place, you know, that were from mm. someplace that wasn't the West. Um, that's when I felt like I, I really connected to those books and those stories. Do you feel like um, fantasy and sci-fi are a little ahead of the game in the diversity stakes? Um, I mean, I look back at, at books like, I don't know, Dahlgren and things like that by Samuel Delaney, who's a, a, a um, gay black man who's this it's just a crazy book from the 70s I think it got banned at the time and and has come back um, do, you, do you feel like sci-fi and fantasy push the envelope there a little bit more or do you think that everybody's heading in the right direction now I think that we're heading in the right direction now um, and the reason I say that is I think that it's true that envelope might have been pushed but for somebody like me who didn't have access to, um, you know, the most cutting edge books, I guess you could say, you know, and, and who was sort of dependent on a library out in the middle of nowhere, um, it, it, it didn't feel like it, right? Mm. Like they only mm. ever carried those big fantasy books, um, you know, those, you know, big fantasy authors, and those were almost universally white men sometimes there were women thrown in there um and that was just the way it was and so it's like it, it might have it might have been a genre that was going in the right direction when i was younger or you know that was that has been going in the right direction for a long time but i didn't experience that and what i would say is what's happening now is that you are seeing more women of color and people of color and marginalized voices um you know uh uh, LGBTQIA authors, um, authors who are doing strange things with the form of the story, authors who are, you know, like I said, people of color, um, you are seeing more of that mainstream. And that I don't think was happening before. And I think that that sort of mainstream acknowledgement of, you know, these, you know, underrepresented voices is really important because it gets the books into way more people's hands. They become commercially successful, and then publishers buy more of those books because they realize that they sell. And then you have more stories um, and more varied stories out in the world. And we really need that right now. So I feel like we're starting to get to that point where we're really having a lot of this, this really great, diverse, you know, these diverse voices and these sort of inclusive voices. We're seeing a lot of that much more mainstream. And I, I think that's wonderful. I think I think we still have a long way to go, though. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, it's, I was thinking about it the other day, and it almost feels like there's there's societal value of books, and then there's commercial value, and obviously the publishers just just by merit that they have to survive, they they tend to have been in the commercial value, and then 
the social value and the commercial value seem to be converging a little bit in that area. Um, but I saw, I saw, I think it was yesterday on your Instagram um, where you, it was an article or you'd, you'd spoken about how some publishers are still saying, oh, we've got a writer that looks or feels like you, or I've got a story like that. And your response is like, how many vampire books written by white people are there out there? There's like thousands of them. Um, how do you how do you see i guess publishers getting over that hump and but still being able to see commercial appeal and things because if we appeal to them just for the you know the goodness of their hearts there's some great publishers out there and they will do that but the majority is still just going to publish selfie books and things like that um i think that it's very simple i think publishers need to hire more more inclusively and more diversely. I think they need to hire, um, you know, gay editors and they need to hire um, black editors and they need to hire Pakistani editors and they need to hire Muslim editors. And, you know, like, I think that we just need a, a, a greater, um, greater representation within the rooms where decisions are being made, right? Because so often when you see whatever, whether it's the book that's, you know, been labeled as problematic or a book that is offensive in, in some way or a book that is not acknowledging, um, you know, or, or, or even just another book that's exactly like these other hundred books that have been written. I think a lot of that happens because you don't have varied voices in the room who can ask these tough questions like, should we really acquire this book over this other one? You know, should we um, should we really think about what this author is saying and whether that's something that we want to say, you know, we want young readers to be thinking about. And I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily believe that you should, you know, cancel a book or, or what have you um, because of what's in it. That's, you know, I used to be a journalist and so I understand how um, that can go the wrong way quickly. Um, but I do think that there should be, especially within the young adult um, space, you know, there should be more of a, um, of like I said, like an inclusivity of, of voices. And I think that if you simply do that within publishing, you're going to start to see that acquisitions become um, more interesting and you're going to get better books and you're going to have books that maybe you wouldn't have thought they'd be commercial, but they become incredibly commercial. I mean, Ember is a book that um, has, um, has a lot of, reference to you know myth that is predominantly found in Pakistan, South Asia, the Middle East, and North Africa. Until that point, there hadn't really been much of that, if any, in the young adult space. So you would think upon reading the book, well, we haven't done this before, so we don't think it's going to work. Mm. But fortunately, there was there was a, you know an editor at Penguin who read the book and saw that, well, the, the story is universal and we you know we want this, we need this. So they published the book and it became this huge hit. And it was because somebody in there was like, this is going to work. Yep. So you, you need people who will believe right mm. in stories that no, wouldn't necessarily normally get that type of belief. And until you change that, I don't think publishing will ever have any sort of permanent change. Mm, mm, interesting. And so swinging back to, to you growing up, seeing someone that looked like you that was a was a writer already you've you've gone into journalism was journalism 
in the back of your mind a way to transition into writing or was journalism the career in itself that you were going going for like how how did that writing career evolve for you so i to some degree i fell into journalism my brother um one of my brothers worked for the high school newspaper um so then i started working for the high school newspaper because i'm a youngest sibling and you kind of end up emulating you know (laughs) these, these siblings who are they seem to be doing it right so it's like okay i'll just do that Um, And then I found I really enjoyed it. And um, when I got into college, I ended up working for the college newspaper. Um, And the only place I was actually going in to work in design, because that's sort of what I knew how to do really well. And I didn't think I was a good enough writer um, to work for for their writing side. So then but then they did, you know, whatever tests they do. And they said, hey, you know, we think you'd be a really good copy editor. So I ended up working as a copy editor, which is, you know, you do the sort of final edits on the story, and you end up you know, compiling late late night stories. You're kind of the last set of eyes on a story before it goes out into the world. You write headlines, you write captions, that sort of thing. Um, and to my surprise, I loved it. I, I was so, so much fun and it was such a joy to work with words in that particular way. So then I ended up applying for an internship at the Washington Post and, um, you know, by some bizarre act of God, I somehow got this internship, <laughs> um, which was very unexpected because I, I didn't have a ton of experience up until that point. I only had college newspaper experience, but I got this internship and um, and that was really when I was like, oh, I love this. I love working in journalism and I love working specifically as an editor. So I've never been a reporter. Mm. Um, and that's a, sort of a common, I don't, I, I always try to clarify it early on that I, I am I purely worked on the editing side in the newspaper business and I loved it. I loved working and working with authors and, 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 um, and reporters. I thought it was so much fun, but when I was in the middle of that, um, I always, I'd always written stories on the side. I just never really thought they could turn into anything. Um, and then one night, you know, I, I read a story about these women in Kashmir um, and how their fathers and sons and brothers were taken by the local forces, uh, local military force forces and thrown into prison. And there was really no recourse for these women. There was no way to get them back, no way to, to figure out what happened to their family members. They were kind of in, in a limbo. And it really hit me hard because Kashmir is, you know, um, uh, uh, part of Pakistan, part of it is part of Pakistan, part of it is part of India. And it's a very contested area. There's there's a lockdown there right now, you know, as we speak going on. So nothing has really improved in, in the years mm. since I read that story. And um, that that really got me thinking about um, about writing fantasy and, and or, or about writing a story in which sort of something similar happens to a character, but they would actually be able to do something to get their family member back. And that's kind of the, the origin of, of the main character, Laia. That's the origin of her story in An Ember in the Ashes is that particular news piece. And then, you know, I was reading about child soldiers um, in, in Liberia or the United States was in the Iraq war and the Afghan war at that time. So I was reading about those wars and, and you know, bombings and extremism and, and refugees and all of this stuff. And it all ended up finding its way into, into the Ember series. Mm-hmm. And so you, you mentioned these stories that you've read as world, world stories that are influencing you. And you've got quite a bit of politics in in your in your series as well is that is that drawn the the political influence drawn from um real world stories from the newspaper or is it from historical events like how did you research and think about um those events 
So it, I would say a little bit of both. So a lot of it is from real world, particularly when it comes to like dictators. <laughs> I really didn't have to look very far. I was like, wow, we have so many dictators in the modern world. Like this is not that complicated. Um, so a lot of that, 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 um, that was inspired by, you know, real world uh, uh, dictators and, and, you know, real world prisons and, and sort of what's happening right now um, uh, on our planet. But um, a lot of it was also inspired by ancient Rome. Mm. Um, I it's it's very silly, but I did a report on Nero when I was in tenth grade, <laughs> and you had to act out. This is the report was that you know you couldn't just write a report; you had to act out a portion of that that historical figure's life. So I acted out Nero's suicide, um, which was very dramatic and completely you know won over all of my high school classmates. Not really. Um, but I did this, you know, and I actually got really into the research for mm. Nero and sort of this whole Julio-Claudian era. I was like, this is awesome and fascinating and like a total soap opera. Um, and eventually I read, you know, the Colleen McCullough books. And, and, and I, I, I have always kind of had a fascination with, with ancient Rome and that era. So that ended up being a big influence on the series, too, in terms of the, um, the empire, which is where the story takes place is kind of a little bit a little bit modeled after uh, uh, ancient Rome. Mm. I mean, it's it's such a fascinating time. And even um, I think I, in the intro, I mentioned Jay Kristoff and his Dark Dawn series is is definitely modeled off a, a lot of the Roman Empire. He's another person that that loves killing off characters. I'd love to... Um, yes, I- we, we have a club, Jay and I. <laughs> Are you guys? It's the, it's the We Like to Kill You. Yes, it's the We Like to Kill Your Faves Club. And... <laughs> You know, we can we compete against each other. No, I'm joking. But but I I know Jay's work well, and we we do joke around a lot about how you know who who likes to kill their faves more. <laughs> me or him. I'd love to I'd love to talk about that a little bit because there's I mean in fantasy and particularly like the Game of Thrones thing probably is is the you know the one that most people will recognize as where people the characters you start to turn to, to fall in love with seem to drop off like flies, and some in some fantasy it can almost feel gratuitous and people are just doing it to do it um but in your books it always really seems to emotionally hit home it's done in a a, an incredibly intriguing way and and something that has a massive impact how do you think about killing off characters um as as you go what are the positives of it what are the negatives of it um like what's the thought process that goes into something like that so i think one of the things that I struggle with is when authors kill off characters for the sole purpose of having a main character have some type of emotional growth. Um, I really don't like that. And I think that that happens a lot in books. And so that was one of the first things I thought about is how do I, how do I have character deaths, which to me was very important because these books touch on real world issues. And one of the biggest things you see in war zones and in, in countries that are that are plagued by war and sectarian violence is death. Um, you, you, you hear of entire generations where people have lost some member of their family, um, where you know there's an, an, an insane number of orphans. Um, you're seeing it now with what's happening in, in Syria. Um, you know, the civil war that's been dragging on for years and years and years. Um, there's there's an entire generation of children who are going to be dealing with real deep trauma. Um, so I wanted to I wanted to acknowledge that that was the reality of the world, 
without making it gratuitous. So for me, I what I ask myself is, if this was a real world situation, would this character live or would they die? You know, would we get into a fight like this particular fight, whatever it might be, and would the character survive that fight or would it be too much for them? That's the primary thing that I try to think about is what is realistic and what is not. Um, you know, when people talk about George R. R. Martin, I think one of the things that I liked about, you know, some of the deaths early on in his like first couple of books, um, which I've actually read the first two, I, I didn't end up reading the rest of them. But, um, but what I liked was that the deaths that he had in those books anyway, felt like they would actually happen, right? Like, you know, spoiler for anyone who hasn't read, but at this point, it's like, you know, um, but if, you know, I think that um, that Ned Stark dying felt very real to me mm. um, because like, how would he have gotten out of that situation? Like it, ju- it just, there wasn't really a way, right? Like that, that, that's what needed to happen. So I try to think of it in that way is that, you know, death only happens when there's really no other way out for that character. Um, they're not going to survive. They're not going to have, you know, whatever the physical skill to maybe, you know, uh, escape death or, or, you know, the, the, the mental acuity to, to be super quick, you know, on their feet and figure out a way to talk their way out of it. You know, that, that happens with my characters when it's appropriate, but with the deaths that I have had, um, they've all felt very necessary to me. And I, I, you know, I would joke a lot about like, Oh, I'm going to kill your faves. But I noticed with my fourth book that, um, there were deaths that I had planned that didn't feel right. It just felt gratuitous. It Mm. felt like I was doing it for the shock value and I had to kind of rein myself in and be like, that's, that doesn't seem right. And so there are actually a few characters in the book who were slated to be killed and who ended up surviving because it just felt like, well, I think they'd actually figure out a way out of this particular situation. Mm. And so flipping, I guess, from a a darker side of fantasy to something that's a bit lighter and particularly in your books, you'll, there's a lot of beautiful romance throughout um, your books. And as a middle-aged white man, I actually really enjoyed it. <laughs> and I think often people see romance as not having literary value or being a bit more wishy-washy and being um, a little bit reluctant to tag something as romance. How do you feel about romance as a as a genre or at least a spice to, to, to sprinkle through the genre that you write in i mean first of all i would challenge anybody who you know talks garbage about romance to actually go try to write a really effective good like heart thumping romance it is much much harder than one would think and i have such deep admiration for true romance authors who manage to tell these beautiful stories um, in original ways that that have so much hope in them. I think that that's an incredible talent and I'm so impressed by it. So whenever anybody um, says to me like, oh, you know, I love the romance in your book, I feel so flattered because I'm like, I can't believe I did it right, you know? So um, so that's the first thing. I think that, um, I think that humans are, are, you know, we are social creatures and, we are often, you know, in relationships of some kind, whether that's family relationships, whether it's friendships, whether it's romantic relationships. And I think that um, that romance just allows us to sort of focus in on one of those kinds, right? Mm. Um, but within that, there's 
there's just a whole um, a whole kind of continent of of what those relationships might be. And so for me, romance was a part of the story. And you know, this is where I think the Ember books are a little bit fantasy, a little bit action adventure, and a little bit romance. They're not really just one thing. Mm. Like most romance, or sorry, most YA uh, books, you know, that are fantasy, right? Like they're never just one thing. Some of them are dystopian. Like sometimes Ember gets called a dystopian um, because the world is is quite is quite dystopian, even though it's actually a pure fantasy. Mm. So, um, so I do think that that romance is something that I always. Um, want to have in the books. I think it's a wonderful way to propel um, to propel the story forward. I think that it increases stakes a lot. Mm. I think that when you're invested in whether two characters will end up together, um, y- you end up being invested in what the other things that they're doing. I would say for me, what, what was important is to sort of know that romance was not the A story for me. Um, the A story was more sort of that fantastical hero's journey. And so romance ended up being more of a secondary storyline. But in a sense that um, it was just as, as difficult to, to write, I think, because you then have to make sure that um, you're hitting all these, these notes, um, you know, within this romance, but that you are still prioritizing the primary mission of these characters. Um but also acknowledging that they're real people and they're, you know, you're going to think about your crush even under bizarre circumstances, because how many times have you or I or anyone listening been in a situation that's kind of an extreme situation. And then randomly that person that you have a thing for pops into your head. Like it happens all the time. And so Mm. to pretend that it doesn't, it just seems weird to me. I also, I find it, um, I find it, I, I think that a lot of, female authors have been sort of pigeonholed and, you know, forced into this place where they feel like um, they are considered to be romance writers or whatever genre they write, you know, the romance is really heavy and, and in, in within that genre and they don't like that. Um, It's frustrating. And, And I can understand why that, that happens, but I would urge, I would urge authors of all, you know, from, you know, whether you're, you're a, a he or she or they, um, you know, I would urge authors to embrace being called a romance writer, like to find pride in that. I think that it's a wonderful thing. And it always actually really bothers me when people are like, oh, this isn't a romance. And they they say it with such disdain. It's like, romance is awesome. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting, like listening, listening to you talk and, and the romance in it, it almost seems to tie back to the philosophy of killing off characters is that that romance can't be gratuitous it can't be there just because you want people to get together it has to be like would they really get together in this situation what would get in the way um because life life does get in the way of of relationships a lot of the time um so maybe that's what that's what makes a great romance is just tracking reality and tracking that that realism to to ground it in other people's true experiences yeah, I think that that's really accurate, you know, tracking that reality and also just, um, you know, letting people linger in these really beautiful moments between characters in the midst of so much darkness, mm. because those moments of hope, I think, are so important both in life and within the reading experience. Those little bright points that you remember later, you know, those scenes that you go back and reread, 
Um, I absolutely have those in some of my favorite books. And a lot of them are the romantic scenes because they're the most hopeful ones. Mm-hmm. And so transitioning into um, some book rec- recommendations, I think it's probably a good good point to talk about this. And, and not just like I'd love to hear YA fantasy, like what are some classics people should read if, um, if they're interested in the genre, but also um, what are some books they might be delighted to discover that they might not, might not have heard of. Um, and even outside of that, romance books, um, literary fiction books, anything that you think is really worth putting on that, that, that growing to, to be read pile. Yeah. Um, so I think that um, in terms of, um, I, I will sort of for focus my attention on young adult, mm-hmm. that age group, because that's the age group where I write. Um, but I um, I loved um, the Wrath and the Dawn series by Renee Atia. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was an incredible series. That's a, a it's historical fantasy romance. Um, she also has another series, um, called the beautiful, and that is a, um, historical, uh, uh, urban romance, like Mm -hmm. a, a vampire, um, type story, but really, really rich historical detail takes place in the 1800s, New Orleans. And it's just, I haven't, you know, I haven't read a book like that before and it was fantastic. Mm, Historical, Um, paranormal, urban romance. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It's really cool. Unreal. It's a, and it's really well researched and I mean, it's, it's really, really a great book um, and great and a great series because she's got another few in that series. Um, And then in terms of contemporary, I love um, Nicola Yoon's The Sun is Also a Star. Mm -hmm. Um, That is a a beautiful book that is romantic, but also contemporary literary. It was nominated for the National Book Award. Um, You know, it was a Prince Honor book, but it's it's just such a, so it's it's one of those genre defying books, you know, it's like so romantic and, you know, totally gives your, you know, heart flutters as you read it, but it's also this, you know, acclaimed, you know, literary book. um, I think that um, Lee Bardugo's books, mm. um, Six, of Six of Crows, her series Six of Crows, is a is a great great fantasy. You know, that's sort of like a, a fantasy, but kind of has an Ocean's Eleven feel it's to really it. Like so a again, heist book, isn't it? It's a heist book. Yeah, um, Roshni Choksi. Um, she has a book called The Gilded Wolves. That's also kind of got that heist story to it, but you know, historical, really richly painted, really beautiful book. Um, within within the sort of speculative fiction space, um, a book called "They Both Die at the End" by Adam Silvera. Oh, what a great um, title! Is a fantastic. It's a it's a great book, and Adam is um, just such a talented writer. Um, and and that that book is fantastic. Also, again, genre defying. Um, so those are those are some of my my favorites. Um, mm. I love all of those authors. I love all of those books. I think that they're they're really strong and none of them is sort of what you expect going into it. They all kind of end up, you know, surprising you. Um, Mm. So yeah, those are, those are some of my favorites. And there's also obviously the Ember in the Ashes series, which um, the final book is just about to come out, which is super exciting. Um, If people want to, I guess, follow you, you're very active on social media. What, what are the, what are the best places for people to, to check you out and, and dive into the Saba to hear? (laughs) behind the books um so if you want to hear me if you want to see how my children are always trolling me follow me on twitter (laughs) um if you want 
to watch me be a complete goofball, follow me on Instagram and both places. I am at Sabata here, S-A-B as in boy, A-A-T as in Tom, A-H-I-R. Um, very tricky. Um, and then on Facebook is sort of, um, you know, me being a little bit, a teensy bit more professional, like a smidge. Um, but um, but yeah, I'm, I'm a, a big dork on social media. So if you want to, if you want to follow a big dork, then <laughs> I'm your gal. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, on, on that note, thank you so much, Saba, for, for taking the time to chat. Um, it's been really, really fun. Um, please, honestly, to those listening, go out and get the Ember and the Ashes series. It is an absolutely wonderful read. Um, thank you, Saba Tahir, and best of luck for the next big thing. Actually, Let's keep going. What is the next big thing? Do you do you, um, I, I almost I get the sense <laughs> that you're you're just beginning. This isn't this certainly isn't the end for you. Um, you know, it's not the end. I've actually already completed the first draft on my next thing and I'm in edits for it now. Um, but I can't tell anyone what it is, but it is very, very different. Um, oh, it is very different. But if you if you read Ember and you're like, I want more, there are graphic novels um, mm. out from or one graphic novel out from Boo Studios. That is an Ember prequel. It's called A Thief Among the Trees. It's a really fun graphic novel. Um, it's written by Nicole at Andalfinger. Um, and the story is by me. And um, the art is by Sonia Liao. Um, such a, such a great book. Really, really fun. Um, and there are two more in that series coming out relatively soon. So very, very exciting. Well, thank you, Sabah, and um, I hope to catch you again soon. Thank you, Tim. Much appreciated. Have a good day. Hi, this is Tim. I just wanted to say thanks so much for listening. Also, a massive thanks to Johnny Hawken for the intro and outro music, Sarah Bervenich for the podcast artwork, and the authors and publishers who make this show possible. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice, give us a shout out on social media, or leave a review on iTunes. If you'd like to reach out to me personally to say hi, you'll find me on Instagram and Twitter at Tim underscore Hawken. That's at T-I-M underscore H-A-W-K-E-N. Or you can even head to timhawken.com and get a free copy of the first book in my Hellbound trilogy by signing up to my newsletter. For a roundup of all the episodes and recommendations, you can also head to timhawken.com forward slash genre wars. Thanks again for listening and happy reading.
sun The shadows Down Down below the light Some comfort here. 